World Cup qualifiers? I haven't watched any of them, Ed. Are you? Ah, I watched uh, England versus Malta. That was it. <laughs> that was dreadful. Yeah, feels like it, a tough one. Four nil, but just you know. For context, it was 1-0 to the 85th minute. Uh, the only bit of international break that I've seen, I saw Ben Woodburn's goal for Wales on, on a vine. I saw uh, Gareth Bale not making two players, but it doesn't count because he lost the ball. So come on, what's all that about um, on Twitter? And I saw Marcus Rashford being passed the ball by Kyle Walker with a multiplayer down to knock the ball out. But Marcus' elite mentality saw that Harry Kane was making a run and instead passed it to Harry Kane to score a goal, which was almost as quick as knocking the ball out of play. Fair play to him. Yeah, well, that's right. He got it out of play. Um, yeah. England were dreadful, just horrible. And uh, who was it in the aftermath said uh, we've got to have more patience? Wasn't it? it might have been Harry Kane. Um, only been waiting the 50 years for a decent England side. No, so. no, we've been waiting... 20 years for a decent England side, to be fair. Yeah, this is not a decent England side. Although there's some decent players in there, but uh, I think when you have a central midfield that includes Jake Livermore and um, and uh, Jordan Henderson, you know you're somewhat short. So if you look at Spain's central midfield, they, they played with Andres, Iniesta, Isco, Asensio, just a, an incredible level of quality there. England are absolutely miles away from that. France have uh, Pogba and Golocante. Uh, and Rabio to back them up. It's pretty, pretty impressive collection of players. Yeah, France, France got a very good team at the moment. Uh, at least in attacking, uh, and yeah, attacking in midfield. I, I don't know about their central defenders. We had a little, little debate about that pre uh, think, pre-recording. But when you play Lauren Koscielny in there, hmm. Lauren Koscielny, this is. This is ridiculous. Like, okay, so maybe they don't have the best central defenders in the world in the same way that they have, like, maybe the best collection of attacking midfielders and central midfielders. They've got really very, very good fullbacks, one of the the better keepers, and uh, their central defensive partnership is likely to be made up of, like, Barcelona and Real Madrid. And Arsenal, yeah. okay, well, we'll admit Arsenal was in there too. But you know, we'll, we'll come on to Arsenal later in the show, I guess, when we're talking about <laughs> yeah. transfer market. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't want to talk, I don't want to talk about international football anymore, Ed. It's just stupid. Like, it's fine in the summer. It's fine. But this international break just feels so... Blech. How many How many more qualifiers are there? There can't be many, right? Because the World Cup's next summer. So I guess they f- normally finish by about December or so because then there's the draw. I think that, that, I don't know about other teams, but France have definitely got, after, so we're recording this before the Sunday games, but after this, they've got two more games in their group. Yeah, right, there you go. Which I guess will be in one break, presumably, or maybe spread across two, who knows. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it, it seems to be done. England, I guess, will qualify, although we don't know, do we? Because if they yeah. get an unfavourable result... Um, against Slovakia, I want to say Slovakia. At Wembley, yeah, yeah un- unlikely, yeah. No, I-, I think they'll qualify and they'll be on the plane to Russia for a you know, months-long show of racism and violence. And uh, and there's all the stuff <laughs> off the pitch as well. Yes. Um, the uh, So should we just, can we just call that our review of the international break or was there more you wanted to? High-quality stuff. Uh, yeah, no, because I haven't seen any football other than England versus Malta. Uh, Phil Jones was a beast, though. I mean, he totally outclassed those bus drivers and <laughs> tax inspectors and whatever else. Oh, are there really part-time players playing for Malta? I guess there would be, wouldn't they? 
Yeah. Right. That's enough of that. Let's talk about the Premier League. Real football. Real football, which no actual real football has happened, but the thing that people actually care about in... in they say they care about football, but the thing they actually care about is players being bought and sold by football teams. So um, I've got a question for you here, straight up. This is not a rank cast question. We might have it from someone. If I see it, I will shout them out. But uh, which team has had the best transfer window? No, no, you've asked that the wrong way, Paul. No, no, have it's I? who won the transfer market. Oh, who's sorry, got the yeah, transfer yeah. market trophy? Yeah, I, I think United have got a United very good chance of claiming that. United! <laughs> that's a quadruple, isn't it? That, that <laughs> yeah, makes it a quadruple, right. yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, I mean, Mourinho's very clear. He said he won four players. He got three plus Latan, so maybe he's that left-sided wing-back short that he really wanted. Um, but if we if we look at all the other um, teams around the Premier League, they were all desperately scrabbling around for a player on the final day, and United weren't. It says that United were happy. So, I think. I mean, it clearly says that United were happy. I mean, Mourinho said even before he got Zlatan, he wouldn't cry and moan if they didn't get the fourth player in because it's been a very complex summer and the club have done everything they could. And that seems a reasonable assessment. Matic is old and ex- and seemed expensive at the time, but no longer seems expensive. Um, so that's a, that's those are the downsides, but the upsides we we know are massive. Lindelof remains, uh, you know, th- th- there is the chance that Lindelof won't work out, but I still think that's a minority chance given Mourinho's experience. You kind of trust Mourinho to bring through a centre back, don't you? Um, and then Lukaku is obviously like hit the ground running and is just generally good and superb and good and great and good. Yeah, I, I think everyone can be pretty happy with that. I don't know whether that turns United into a, a Premier League winning side or not. There, there are still some gaps in the in the um, in the squad, aren't they? You know, so if if Matic gets injured, he's you know we now have Maran Fellaini in central midfield. Uh, there's still no Herrera. Oh yeah, Herrera um, or Maran Fellaini because he's a he's a favourite. It seems. Um, but it, but it will be Herrera if if he plays in midfield too. It will be Herrera and Pogba. We had Fellaini and Herrera in the squad all season last season, and he always almost always played Herrera and Pogba. It's a myth to say <laughs> he would see like with twenty minutes to go in the game. Oh my God, yes. Then he'll bring on Maran Fellaini. It's still wrong. Um, it's still wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, fine. You know, but but it's I, I, I don't know whether there's. Um, I mean, United don't have a central midfield that's up with the very elite in Europe. I think we'll find that in the Champions League. Left back still a question mark, isn't it? Do you mean do you mean backup central yeah. midfielders up there yeah, with yeah. the best? Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, you know, I think Pogba will have an outstanding season. Uh, we've seen some evidence of that already, haven't we? This season, um, left backs yeah. definitely a question mark. I mean, it's a big question mark whether Luke Shaw gets fit, gets in the team comes back to being a player we know he can be, is, is focused in the right way and all those those kind of things. Otherwise, we were with Daley Blint, who isn't the most athletic. I thought um, we, we wouldn't have had a question about right back, would we? But I'm not sure that Valencia's really started the season that well. Maybe he's just uh, getting a slow start or something like that. So, you know, a few questions. Um, a total lack of width in attacking areas may also be a question in some games. We'll see. Uh, it, all I'm saying is I'm nitpicking the imperfections in the squad that could have been um, ironed out. But I think, generally speaking, a very satisfactory transfer window. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, the big question of whether this lifts United to being a Premier League winning squad, there's two, there's two things. One, can they make up the shortfall on points from last season? And I think 
literally better finishing would have made up probably more than half of those points. So the the real the real gap that we actually have to make up is a lot less than the the kind of hard points value would suggest. Um, then comes, and I think we've already made two points up from last season, because I think we drew with West Ham at Old Trafford um, last season. But anyway, that's by the by. Um, then comes the question about what the other top five clubs have done. So Arsenal are not going to win the league, right? This is that's just, I mean, this is not even a necessary conversation. Arsenal are managed by a man who played a player he knew was about to be sold to the team they were playing against in the game before it happened. He's a total disgrace and <laughs> should be nowhere near managing a Premier League club. Like, was very good once, seems like fundamentally a decent guy, but oh my goodness, no. Look, blood, fam. <laughs> what, is, what is this? Arsenal TV? Yeah, I mean, come on. He's a disgrace, fam. No, no, I mean, he is. He needs to go. Uh, but he's just got a new two-year contract <laughs> to show you how well Arsenal are being managed at the moment. Um, yeah, amazing. Um, I mean, they've had a disaster of a transfer window, Arsenal, haven't they? I mean, they've sold Oxley chamberlain who, uh, you know, isn't to the last year of his contract, um, I guess, wanted to go rejected a contract offer um so you know he wasn't that good and they were playing him at left back last season mm. so um uh, maybe that's a decent amount of money for that player but they haven't reinvested it at all really i mean they've brought lacazette in with a lot of question marks about whether he'll do it in the premier league or not i mean so far it um, looks pretty promising that he will i have to say he's yeah, been we'll very, very good except he was dropped by the, the walking disgrace that is arsene Wenger, who just chose not to pay his new 50 million pound striker against liverpool so it's like we can pick the bones out of arsenal's transfer dealings in the window go, oh, was it a good or bad window? So it doesn't matter because they did not sack Arsene Wenger. So, like, <laughs> maybe they'll win the FA Cup, but blood, seriously, it's just not happening. Yeah, I am looking forward to seeing Alexis Sanchez play this season because, <laughs> wow, I mean, you know, uh, we will not sell him, we will not sell him, we will not, we'll, okay, we will sell him. Oh, by the way, we won't sell him. I mean, talk about <laughs> the perfect recipe for pissing off a player. Yeah, and, you know, the the key thing that everyone always says is, oh, it's a World Cup year, the player has to perform. There's no way the Chile manager doesn't say, don't worry, Alexis, just take it easy for a year. 100% you're in the team. 100, 100%. Don't, don't just like, just stay physically fit, which obviously you're Alexis Sanchez, you're going to do that because uh, you've got the burning drive inside you. But just take it easy on the pitch. If Wenger drops you, don't even worry about it. Like, this is not a place where, he, a situation where he's kind of fighting for his place in the national team. National team manager will be delighted if he basically goes on strike for the season. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing that Thomas Lamar is, you know, reasonably intelligent because uh, he took one look at the shambles at his arsenal and said no thanks no, no, no merci uh, there was a tweet from aaron manx on twitter which goes see young french players don't even mess with arsenal anymore they're all eating yogurt oblivious to who it was that invented it that's just wow yeah thomas lamar a monaco player like of all the people that should be like in that kind of you know 10 years ago thomas lamar would have gone to arsenal um uh, undoubtedly yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, I'm sure Arsene Wenger tried very, very, um, very hard to get him, but he's lost the credibility with with a lot of players. Well, that was yeah. Arsenal, total yeah. shambles. Liverpool got Oxlade Chamberlain. Um, who else did they bring in? Anyone decent? Can't remember uh, now. Y- yeah, uh, um, 
the big sign at the beginning of the window, Mo Salah. Um, Mo Salah, yeah. Very he looks good. like he started the season well. He had a bad time at Chelsea and they've, they've brought Naby Keita, who's uh, rated highly by everybody, especially all the stats nerds that you love so much. But for next season, um, but he, he won't. But for next season. Which is yeah. crazy. Like, what a what strange deal. But that's that's happened, so that's not going to affect them this season. Although... You'd have to say, of course, we don't like saying nice things about Liverpool, but that does speak to a pretty well-run club that they're kind of, you know, they're they're building a squad and there's a long-term vision and all this kind of stuff. But they, and they kept Coutinho, who I don't think is quite in the Sanchez position, although apparently he's very, very sad not to have gone to Barcelona. They turned down astronomical amount of money for Coutinho, which you could kind of, you could put that in the kind of win column, couldn't you, for the transfer window? Because you keep one of your best players. But I think that is definitely TBD, whether that was a, a good move or a bad move, depending on how Coutinho reacts to it. Yeah, I mean, I think you could have taken £150 million or whatever was being put on the table and reinvested it in the side. So there are a lot of holes in that Liverpool squad. Yeah, because no big-name central defender, which was... The, was clearly the... Was the need, you know, they yeah. sold Sacco instead, so he, he obviously wasn't in Klopp's plan. So, yeah, right. you know, I'm not sure that Liverpool will be that happy about um, their window. They've kept Coutinho, but we'll see how he really performs. And Oxlade-Chamberlain, he's just like, a, yeah, you know, maybe maybe Klopp will turn him into something amazing, but um, uh, Wenger hasn't done it for the last yeah. few years. But, so. I, I, I mean, like, seriously, who would you give a 24-year-old player to? to make good like I definitely would have given to Osimenga who can only ruin players now apparently it seems <laughs> wow Chelsea <laughs> so uh, interesting start to the window they um, um denied about uh, Nemanja Matic for some time didn't they uh, trying to get Bakayoko for Monaco who they did get um he's more of an all-round player Bakayoko than than Matic who's gone off to United and immediately strengthened a rival. Um, and then Chelsea obviously realised their mistake and went out and bought Danny Drinkwater on the last day, which is slightly I odd, mean, I have to say. That was not the big Chelsea story of the last day of the transfer window, of course. No. It was the uh, presence and then non-presence of Ross Barkley. Now, it should be said at this point that Ross Barkley has taken to Twitter and tweeted, uh, I w- I, there was never a medical at Chelsea. I, I was going to go for a medical, but we decided to look out, because I'm injured at the moment, we, we decided to reconsider in January. But never mind all that. Uh, yeah, but I don't no. like that story. I, I prefer the story that yeah. he's on the treadmill, you know, or he's got the finger up the bum or whatever it was, and he just said, nah. <laughs> just no I'm off I'm going back home I'm going back home I don't like it um <laughs> that's that's like straight up an amazing story this is a story where print the legend could not be more appropriate there is no exactly. doubt that this story will be remembered as Ross Barkley got off the treadmill and went home um Chelsea didn't ship Costa anywhere? No, this can be very interesting. I mean, is he? He's not even with the first team squad at the moment, is he? I he's mean, in Brazil. Yeah, I, I, Alvaro Morata started the season okay. You know, looks a decent mm-hmm. player. Um, as we know, you know, he's going to be a decent player. We'll see how many goals he scores. Uh, but they they clearly didn't get all the players they want. A couple of weird ones as well. They bought um, Killian Azard from a like Hungarian <laughs> second division side. And you're like, hmm, yeah. what's that all about? Until you work out whose brother he is. Yeah. Doesn't take that long, given the surname, to work yeah. it out, does it? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Drinkwater signing is a weird one. They're just going to like sign Mares and Vardy in January. They're getting the band back together. <laughs> 
maybe. Yeah. I mean, look, he's a, he's a good player, Drinkwater, but he's not a great player, is he? I mean, right. he looks like squad filler. Yeah. For £35 million, pounds. he's not as good as Nemanja Matic. But it is important to get squad filler, of course. But the funny thing is the the Matic comparison was like, okay, they sold him to United for more than they spent on Bakayoko, but now that they've spent almost as much as they sold him for on Danny Drinkwater, you can't do that. And they don't have those bragging rights. I mean, a big one for them, of course, is Romelu Lukaku because, you know, everyone spent the entire summer assuming Lukaku was going back to Chelsea. And the big question is, was Diego Conte one of those everyone... Sorry, not Diego, Antonio. I do that all the time. Antonio Conte, was was he one of the people assuming that um, Lukaku would go to Chelsea? Because if so... I think so. Yeah. So a mixed window, like some... They, they've kind of just replaced the players they've let go, really. Yeah, and um, I, I think the rumours that Conte isn't that happy will probably be borne out. You know, they haven't gone forward. That doesn't mean they're going to go backwards, um, unless Diego Costa really kicks off. Um, I mean, maybe maybe he just doesn't play for six months and goes to Atletico Madrid in, in the winter window and they can buy players again. I mean, that's what... At which point United will activate uh, <laughs> Antoine Griezmann's £92 million pounds, uh, buyout clause, which is looking like a complete bargain right now, yeah. um, and uh, bring him along just for, you know, shits and giggles. Yeah. Um, the last player in... The last team in the top six is the one that had the busiest, most, like, outlandish transfer window. Um, Manchester City, who spent a king's ransom. But as was pointed out on the Squawker Talker podcast, the one thing City have done really well this this summer is ship out their dead wood, which I don't think United have done quite so well. Obviously, there's one particular bit of dead wood that we shipped out. Um, but, but generally speaking, there's still a few of the players that you would maybe have thought United would have upgraded on this summer that they've kept instead. Um, but City have definitely kind of got rid of a load of players and just brought in all the fullbacks. Just buy all the fullbacks. All of them for hundreds mm. and hundreds of million pounds. Well, I mean, look, I think in Mendy they've got a very good left back. You know, very he had a great season last season at Monaco. Um, Kyle Walker, I think they've got a decent left back, right back. Yeah. Um, and Danilo, they've got a player who, who was very good until he went to Real Madrid and then couldn't get into the team. So, um, yeah, mind you, he was trying to get into the team ahead of Carvajal and, uh, you know, he can play both sides. So they've, they've stocked up there. Um, they've got Edison, who's been a bit flappy to start with, but but it's an uh, upgrade on Bravo, isn't it? Let's face yeah, that. It is. Uh, Bernardo Silva was excellent I mean, at Monaco last season. He's going to be a very good signing, I think. I assume that's that's the big one, isn't it? Because the Pep Guardiola team with Bernardo Silva in it, that's like that is the big. He's the big dog signing in that team. Yeah. Well, listen, you know they've they've got Sterling, Silva. They wanted to bring in Sanchez, Gabriel Jesus, Sergio Aguero, who seems like he's not first choice anymore, which is mental for a player who just scored 33 goals last season. Um, so they've got you know, Kevin De Bruyne. They've got a lot of attacking choices uh, to play the sort of system that um, uh, Guardiola wanted. What they didn't do was bring in a central defender. Right. And assuming that Vincent Company gets injured soon, as we would just... Which is a good assumption. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they w- They'll be regretting not spending money on the world's fifth best central defender. I mean, not. One, I don't want to say that I'm vindicated by the fact that, you know, one of the better managers in the world was chasing Johnny Evans... Uh, for the latter part of the transfer window, but you know, and and you know, one of the one of the other better managers in in the world said there's absolutely no way he'd have sold him if he was manager of Manchester United. So you know, you know, you know, just saying, just saying. 
Um, but Johnny Evans remains with Tony Pulis. He does. Yeah. Strange match, that. Oh, there's one other team that I completely forgot existed because their transfer business just took so long to happen. But in the end, Spurs have had a pretty decent window. They saved United from the uh, awkwardness of having to deal with having signed Serge Aurier. Yeah. Mm. Um, yes. yeah. Statement put out by uh, LBGT uh, Spurs fan saying, oh, you know, we, we think he can... He can uh, rectify his previous mistakes i thought it was very generous of them it was it was a it was a really good statement though it was about education and stuff it was good um let's hope something comes of that that's positive uh fernando lorente is an excellent signing for them because obviously he knows he's not going to be first choice center forward but he's a he's a great plan b to have isn't he i mean you, you can't complain about having lorente to bring on he'll do a better job than vincent jansen you would imagine yeah yeah no no i'm not not a lot of money spent experienced player, gives them a, an alternative. Um, clearly, he knows he's going to be second choice, so he's not going to be kicking off about not playing. So, uh, good purchase, I think. Um, Paolo Gazaniga to play backup goalkeeper. That's boring. Talking about backup goalkeepers is always boring. But Davinson Sanchez, who I thought was superb in yeah. the Europa League final. Um, yeah, really really interesting player. You know, I think uh, they've spent a lot of money on him you know as a as a especially from holland because it's it's uh, it doesn't always work out does it and in fact a few players that spurs have signed from holland in recent seasons haven't worked out um and in fact a lot of the players that spurs have bought for decent money in recent seasons haven't uh worked out either but um but you know he he was very very good in that europa final a lot of people relate uh, rate him very highly uh, we'll see it looks like a good one so i'd really like to talk to a kind of panel of neutrals because my take on this is out of those six teams, the one who's done miles and miles by miles the best business is Man United. And I'm uncomfortable with making that assumption, given how much I want that to be true, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, look, I think it's I think it's fair enough. United have had a very good summer. It's, a, it's like an 8 out of 10 summer, isn't it? It, it yeah. would have been a 10 out of 10 summer if we'd signed, like, Messi. <laughs> I was sure you were going to say if we'd sold Maron oh, Fellaini. sold Maron Fellaini either. They're interchangeable to get to a 10 out of 10. <laughs> uh, one thing that happened right at the end of the window, uh, at David WC3, asking about this, in fact, it happened after the end of the window here, um, was that Andres Pereira went to Valencia on loan for the season and, and all the journalists saying this is against, well, this is kind of not what Mourinho wanted. And it was Pereira saying, no, I'm not taking up the offer of kind of... Uh, sitting on the bench for a season here. I, I, I want to yeah. play all season. And he signed a contract extension and went on loan, yeah. a.k.a. the Chelsea. Yeah, um, let's um, let's hope it works out. You know, he's gone to Valencia, so decent side. It's an upgrade on Granada. He had a very good season at Granada. Um, but uh, I hope he hasn't damaged his relationship. Of course, the last player went out on, on loan against his manager's wishes. Uh, and Yanazai didn't have such good a time of it. So I hope there's more about Pereira and it's it's really going to help him. I mean, I'm sure it'll help the player. I'm, look, he's had a good season in Spain last season. There's no reason to think he won't have. And he's probably making the right decision for him. He might have got 20 games, though, uh, for United in midfield because I don't think United are overstocked in central midfield. Um, but we'll, you know, 
But we'll see. Scott McTominay has been promoted into the first team instead. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, Scott McTominay, uh, not necessarily one of the players that's super highly rated by the people that have watched a lot of the youth team, but Paul McGuinness um, tweeting that he uh, was a really late bloomer. And I have to say, whenever he's played for the first team, obviously it's not been the highest pressure situations or anything, but he's he has looked very comfortable in the centre midfielder. I think he's a very mature player uh, and uh, he's not going to let anyone down if he has a few games this season but it will only be a few um anything else interesting happen um Ravel Morrison went on loan from Lazio to Atlas in the Mexican first division yeah carrying the world on his shoulders that boy yeah oh boom good good it's not my joke it's not my joke my friend Steve told me that joke and it made me really laugh yes uh, Renato Sanchez went to Swansea Sli- slightly weird Renato Sanchez yeah I mean you know so highly rated 12 months ago he's uh, he had a bad season and Munich didn't play a lot, and he's trying to re- rebuild his career. At Swansea, you're going to have a horrible season. Almost certain that both of us were properly gutted that Sanchez went to Bayern instead of coming to United last season and sort of were retrospective, were like pro, um, ahead of time kicking off about Mourinho having been involved in that decision, even though Mourinho wasn't yet the manager. Um, but at the moment, that's looking like a pretty uh, a pretty decent move. I mean, a pretty like United missing out on him seems like a pretty decent decision. Yeah, it does. Um, uh, you said you said Swansea are going to have a horrible season, and you might well be right. Um, but their transfer business has been pretty amazing, really. Uh, the in, as well as getting Sanchez on loan, which is obviously like I thought was completely bizarre, and I couldn't understand it until someone pointed out the Paul Clement connection, which then suddenly everything slots into place, and it it makes sense that Ancelotti would trust him. Yeah. But they've signed Roque Messa, who's a decent a decent player apparently, but uh, and Tammy Abraham from Chelsea on loan, who certainly looks like ready to be playing for the first team, and and Sam Klukas from Hull, who's not like a super exciting player, but um, Nonetheless, was very functional in the Premier League. Certainly, one of Hull's better performers in the Premier League. And Wilf- yeah. Wilfred Boney, who was electric for Swansea, scored tons. You know, he's, he's beloved at Swansea, and and if he can recapture any of that level of uh, performance, he doesn't. You know, he, he, they've got creative players who will create chances sure. for him. So, sure. I mean, the big question is, do, can they replace the goals? I mean, because they leaked a lot of goals last season, but they scored some too. Mm. And they replace the goals that Lorente and Sigerson yeah. got them. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. It's a good point. Yeah, because if you kind of say maybe Sanchez and uh, Boney are a replacement rather than an upgrade, aren't they? So, yes, going to be going to be going to be really fascinating to see how all this plays out. Um, all right, very good. Well, um, transfer window also ended with some financial shenanigans, but you know that's. Uh, I can't even say shenanigans, can I? That's how stunned I was by Kylian Mbappe going to PSG on a loan. There's just nothing dodgy here at all. Nothing to see financial fair play people, you know. Um, I think, uh, was it it one of the uh, Sky journalists? I I say journalists with, you know, little marks around it. Um, Said, uh, UEFA will take this very seriously. I was like, the f***. They will. Yeah, UEFA will take this very seriously until they all get ambassadorial roles for the 2022 World Cup. I mean... Allegedly. You know, they're saying, like, UEFA are investigating PSG for financial fair play irregularities. Like, 
investigate. That's just going to take ages, isn't it? Just like, just have a quick look at Twitter. Go, oh, look, who have they signed? Oh, yeah, no, that's definitely not. They definitely can't look. That's not financial fair play. Done. Investigation done. Uh, but they'll get fined. I mean, Paris Saint-Germain, this is a club that's 40 years old with no real global fan base at all and hasn't had achieved any success in continental level and wasn't even champions of France last season, bring in more commercial revenue than any club on the planet by miles. Yeah, right. And all their sponsors begin with a Q. The, um, the, the Qantas sponsor them. That's weird. That's a weird choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Look, it's a sovereign wealth fund. Let's just not beat around yeah. the bush. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and the, the question then becomes for UEFA and maybe even European competition authorities, is that distortion of an industry acceptable or not? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll find out. Um, but the thing that's actually going to happen is they'll get a fine. <laughs> fine. Which, you know, I think they'll be fine with that. Um, and then they'll get a transfer ban and go, oh, no, oh, can't sign any players. Oh, what a shame. We'll just have to stick with Neymar and Mbappe for a bit. <laughs> they probably won't even get a transfer ban. And what they'll actually get is instead of being able to play 25 players in the Champions League, they'll be able to play 21, but those extra four would have all been like youth team players anyway. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mess. I mean, you know, I, th- I think I picked them as sort of slightly tongue in cheek for the Champions League, but I think they have to be taken seriously as serious Champions League contenders this season. I mean, uh, take take the kind of off the pitch stuff out of the out of the way for a second and and that is one heck of a squad and a strike force and they've got the midfield to back up that strike force they've got creative players to feed them maybe you could say their defense is not the absolute peak but whose is really like it we live in a world where peak defense is is not what any of the big teams are really striving for so you know we'll see no i mean um it's you know the goalkeeper and right back are the weakest links of that back four. Um, but it's not a bad back four. Verratti in central midfield, you know, very dominant. Uh, tons of attacking talent now. Um, they they uh, they will be a good see, good team in uh, the Champions League this season. So, should we, uh, should we take loads of listener questions now? Uh, let's do. We've spent half an hour talking about transfers. <laughs> As Sean KDLA says, isn't it so nice he's not our problem anymore? We'll just pass over that one. Just going just gonna to pass over that one. Yes. Yes, let's raise a glass to that, No, come on. Listen, it's not. It's no laughing matter. Um, I, I do... Uh, I, no, it's not really. And uh, although I did have a laugh at um, uh, Rio Ferdinand roasting him on Twitter. I did not see that. Did you not uh, reply to the, hey, Rio, do you want picking up in the morning, pal? With, uh, <laughs> no, not that, no thanks anymore. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, at red underscore T underscore devil... Is Griezmann still the long-term target? Don't know, probably. That's my, that would be my guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess at the start of the summer, we wouldn't have said Lukaku and Griezmann would come in. It seemed like Lukaku was the replacement once Griezmann didn't happen, but they do play in different positions. Yeah, I never bought that at all. I mean, that was the, the club spin, wasn't it? It's like, oh, no, we've decided not to get Griezmann because we want a number nine instead. And no, I, th- I think... I think it's likely, and I think it makes more sense next summer, given that Juan Mata is out of contract or close to, maybe another year left on his contract. You could see, you know, easily see him kind of moving on at that point and bring Griezmann in, um, you know, another another 
good season of Mata playing a lot of games and then and then I don't know if it's one or two more seasons, but would it wouldn't be surprised to see him be replaced in the squad at that point, which given his age. Yeah, we just want all the players. Yeah, all the players. Um, uh, just a quick a question that comes up from time to time, which we, we, we've answered before, but we'll answer again. So at known as Mike, Mike Bellhouse says, with the start of um, the Women's League, Super League on the horizon, when will United have a women's team? Is it purely a commercial decision? Yep, when the Glazers came in, they, um, they uh, ended United's uh, women's team to save £1 million per year. Um, and uh, it seems like it will be... Uh, it will be the the point at which it becomes more embarrassing than it is expensive, and who knows when that will be. Yeah, but the the startup costs of a, a women's team are now going to be significantly more than one million pounds. So uh, I can't yeah. see it any time in the near future. Um, at every team underscore Mark, friend of the show, Mark Thompson says, "Did you watch Mourinho in the Grenfell game? What was his performance like? And can yeah. he fill in for David de Gea when he goes off to Madrid? I don't know about that, but he could fill in for Romelu Lukaku when we get a penalty. Um, he he didn't look great in goal, but he stroked his penalty home with absolute." A plum. Ah, very, very calm penalty. I, th- I thought he made a few mistakes in goal, didn't he? He came out a bit too early, uh, basically dived over the ball for one chance. He's, he's got to refocus, I think. Maybe maybe dump him, in, him into the reserves for six months and uh, he might be able to come up to scratch. Work harder. <laughs> At J. James Aylwood says, do you think Jose will stay long-term or look to move in a couple of seasons? Who knows? I mean, history tells us that he doesn't stay long-term. He keeps talking about building a... A, uh, a legacy uh, and uh, staying for 15 years. But he said that at Chelsea and then it all went completely tits up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the really kind of rose-tinted version of that is that maybe you could say, OK, well, Chelsea is a club where you clearly can't do that because of Abramovich, whereas at United you potentially could. But I think ultimately this is about Mourinho. So I guess I wouldn't be totally surprised if he maybe stays five years, but even that feels a bit like it's just because that's what I want to happen. Um, okay, at that mash guy says, which one player from each top six team, other top six team, would you get to improve United? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, we we uh, we could fit um, Alexis Sanchez into the team. I think. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, who's got a decent left back? Anyone? Anyone? I mean, uh, yeah, Benjamin Mendy. I would have. He's he's decent left back. Danny Rose is a half-decent left-back. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Uh, I was going to say Harry Kane, but, like, if we play a front two, Harry Kane. Actually, do you know, I think... Mm, no, yeah, no. OK, we'll go Danny Rose from Spurs. We're just going to get pick full-backs from each of these teams. Yeah, um, I, you got to find somewhere to put David Silver in the side. I don't know where, yeah. though. He's a sure. little magician. Yeah, play him alongside yeah. Pogba. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Matic as well like play you'd have to play 4-3-3 under those circumstances no Liverpool players because they've played for Liverpool so not allowed sorry Um, it won't be top six this season anyway so it doesn't count (laughs) we think Everton are going to super super Rooney will Uh, score the goals to fire Everton to sixth (laughs) if he can stay out of the uh, slammer at Ale Hud 42 says is Stoke in the Midlands or the North West Good question, Midlands. It's in between the two, isn't it? Uh, I think it's inherently in the north bit of the Midlands rather than the south bit of the northwest. <laughs> it's all controversial. <laughs> um, it's an area of the world that you have no need to go to. 
ever. Unless you really like pottery, to be fair. There is good pottery stuff there. And Alton Towers is quite near there, so... Um, I think also I might be going there next weekend, but that's another question. Very nice. Um, at Wayne Sheehan says, come the end of the season, who do you think will replace Arsenal in the top six? Everton, as discussed. Maybe Liverpool. Um, at Hez133 says, which cup will Romero play in? He'll play in the League Cup, obviously. Play in the FA. Yeah, maybe the FA yeah. Cup. Yeah, he can't play in the Champions League. It's, it's mental. I had this conversation on Twitter at some point yeah. during the week where I said... Do you ever think how weird it is that Romero played in the UEFA in the Europa League final? Loads of people were going, no, it wasn't weird at all. Like, it was weird. Like, it was weird. It was it completely makes sense that, you know, he'd got us to that point in the competition. He was in good form at that point. All that, I get all that, but it, when you've got two players and one of them's better than the other one. And it's the most important game in the club's recent history. And you pick the one that's not as good as the other one. It's never going to stop being weird. No, I, I fully agree. Yeah, sentimental decision. Really odd. Yeah, worked out nicely, though. Uh, at Derry Aldrit, great question. Uh, will the owners be forgiven for the years of austerity now they're splashing the cash? And the, the reason that I... Th- well, they, they are not splashing the cash. Yeah. There just happens to be much greater free cash flow at United now, yeah. um, given, given some of the, the debt restructuring and the massive TV contracts and massive commercial revenue. Uh, and this is, this is I think, uh, uh, a kind of fundamental misunderstanding, which is quite widespread about why United didn't... Like, why United fans didn't like the Glazers as owners. It was not because... They didn't spend money, in inverted commas. It was because uh, a leveraged... They bought United with a leveraged buyout for the financial benefit of their family only. This is... They risked the future of the club for their own personal gain. You know, like Ed said... They're not splashing the cash. Cash is being thoroughly splashed, but it's not. no money is coming into United from the Glazer family. Plenty of money is still going out. And just because they got lucky and United didn't collapse doesn't mean that their ownership wasn't still a kind of affront to uh, everything that United stands for. Yeah, exactly what he said. And... Um... There's a new book out called Red Rebels, which is uh, about the uh, foundation of um, of FC United. Go read it just for the count of you. Interesting. Um, at Hez133 says, does Ed have an update on the cost of Ashley Young per goal slash assist? <laughs> just keeps going up. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, oh, this is a good one. At Shrikanth underscore Nima, your views on Rooney's comments about LVG and how we should have continued with him as a trainer coach. Well, as Daniel Harris uh, put on Twitter, um, he always picked me. Yeah. It's a very important factor. And uh, I think it's extremely abundantly clear that replacing the trainer coach with uh, the winning, obsessed, driven maniac that is Jose Mourinho... Not a good move for Wayne Rooney's United career, but a good move for United. Wayne Rooney, who uh, would have found his level in England versus Malta, I think. The irony of him like trying to help his career by renouncing international football and then... Anyway, look, we're not going to talk about it. Um, at Wasim Veli says, rude with or without beard. I've got a potentially slightly controversial view of this. 
I'm generally very pro-beard, but I don't like a very neatly trimmed beard. No, it looks like he's in a 70s porn movie. I was thinking Hitman. Like, that's kind of what he looks like. Hit, uh, Hitman. Hitman's yeah. good. Maybe you could combine the two. Check out my big weapon. Wow. Check out my neatly trimmed beard. Um, at Big Shimmery Wall says, does Michael Carrick know that everyone knows he's always senior United player said? He's going to work it out soon. <laughs> he's going to have to. There are none left. It's him and Ashley Young. Um... Trotsky Grip says, how come the other top teams get to play against varied opposition who try different things and we have to play West Brom 30 times a season? Yeah. <laughs> well, a good point. No, no, not quite, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. We'll, we'll have a lot of teams just uh, trying to shut up shop. The thing is, there is actually a good answer to this question and it's that in the Van Gaal years, it was extremely effective to play against United by trying to shut up shop. And the thing that I've been most excited about this season is how three teams have tried it and none of them have really even come that close to succeeding because we've broken the deadlock with set pieces which even if that doesn't happen every single time other teams are going to have to take United's threat from set pieces seriously this season and and they're going to have to vary their strategy because this is not going to work in the same way that it has in the last few seasons. To be fair, I don't think it should have worked as effectively last season. We talked so much about the amount which profligate finishing cost United last season. But I think this time out, I just don't think there's going to be many teams getting a lot of joy out of trying to play like West Brom against us. Yeah, uh, and uh, Lukaku's a very effective flat-track bully. bully. So, um, Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. At NKB underscore MUFC, Nathan Barnett says, Yesterday I met the only person I've ever known who watches only international football and not club football. Thoughts on that? It's just weird. I think that's completely fair. Uh, friend of the show, at Brian uh, Brian Roy, at B Roy 1709 With Pogba, Nemanja Matic, under Herrera and Michael Carrick, do we now have the centre midfielders to play a potential, to potentially play a classic 4-4-2? Meaning Marcus Rashford or Anthony Marshall can play, Anthony Marcel can play with Lukaku up top. Um, I don't think it'll happen very often. No. And there isn't really a lot in wide areas either. It's going to be a very narrow 4-4-2, isn't it? Yeah. That's the that's I think the big problem is is what we do with wingers. Oh, this is a question that upsets me. At a underscore matter underscore of underscore time says you guys briefly mentioned uh, Jose's typical three year stints. If it should happen to us, who should we look to as a replacement? This is the thing. If he's here for three seasons, that's the end of next season. He's leaving. It's too soon. I'm not ready. Yeah, I don't know the answer either because uh, let's see who the. Uh... The hot thing is, I mean, if United really now are on just like the rotational cycle of managers every three years, there's a, there's a small pool of elite managers from whom people dip. So maybe maybe it's Carlo Ancelotti that will be leaving Bayern and coming over to United. Uh, yes, maybe so. Um, at Heinlein says, who wins in futsal? The Spanish-speaking group, De Gea, Mata, Herrera, Valencia, Romero, or the French-speaking group, Martial, Lukaku, Flaney, Bailly, Tuanzebe? Well... Does Twanzebe speak French? No, no I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> He's not French anyway. No, I don't know that either. Um, He's, well, it's not no, I, Well, uh, you know, the problem is as soon as it comes to Flaney, it's going to bounce off his shins, isn't it? Because close control is what is needed in that game. Yeah, but the uh, the Spanish lads have got De Gea and Romero. So, you know, 
I mean, they would have Andreas Pereira, even though he's on loan. So I think that would be a bit of an... Ad- no, wait a minute. No, he's Portuguese speaking. Maybe he speaks French. He's from Belgium. We'll have him. <laughs> I, I may have just revealed who I want to win this match by saying we, but we wouldn't have a goalkeeper, so that's a bit of a problem. But what, about, what about an English contingent? we got, you know, Mike Smalling, Phil Jones. Yeah. Oh, Marcus Rashford's Rashford, good, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, th- I think I'd have, I'd have the French players. They've got Marcel and Lukaku. Um, and Pogba, Pogba was in the French group. It's <laughs> cheating. Um, all right, at Big Shimmery Wall again. Great question. Which current United players' audio book autobiography would you be able to get furthest through if it was read by that player? And the answer to this question is Romelu Lukaku, who I could listen to read the phone book. The man has a lovely timbre and a glorious sort of mixed up, slightly northwest, slightly London, slightly Belgian accent. It's perfect. Not Zlatan? No, I'd get tired of him laughing at his own jokes. <laughs> I realise this is very thin ice for this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we say laughing at our own jokes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. All right. Two more questions. Okay. At Tom1991Wells, if we had to have one of these back in the team, who are you choosing, Bebe or Obertan? Well, Obertan, because he, he was actually half effective in some Carling Cup games or whatever it was called back then. No way. The answer to this question is definitely Bebe, who is tearing it up for Ibar at the moment in mm. in Spain. Whereas Obertan is like, you know, past his peak in inverted commas. And finally, a question... And what a peak it was. <laughs> a question that I could not miss because it's so good. Um, at Mick Osterdal says... And the Mania village was called Vida. Thus, Nemanja Matic should be called Mata. Agree? Question mark. Clearly, although a bit confusing. Bit of a trademark issue there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. That that is a lot of listener questions, and hopefully uh, enough. Uh, it seems like a good time now to uh, have a conversation with Ed. I love talking to you, but I think I might. We've been talking for like 45 minutes. Be good to talk to someone else for a bit. Do you mind if I if I do that? Yeah, I do. Well, go on, please. All right, then. Here's Dan's story. In Rankar's tradition, I now say that I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Daniel's story of Football 365s and the Football 5s podcast and all various different football things on the internet. And also, Dan, published author. Yes, that still feels weird saying it, and I still don't dare say it. But, yeah, I think it is officially true now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wanted to get you on to have a chat about the book, which is called, well, tell tell the people, tell the people all about it. It's called Portrait of an Icon, and, and Football 365 readers will will know that Portrait of an Icon has been a series that started on, on the website in October 2015, not with any intention of collating into a book or even it being a long-running series particularly, but just a nice idea um and a few weeks in i did a bobby robson portrait of which i put a link to the bottom for the sir bobby robson foundation um and it kind of sparked a bit of a light bulb in my mind of actually if this series runs and runs maybe we could collate it into a book and maybe we could sell it for the foundation and i never really thought anything of it and just carried on writing them and then over time i it became a bigger idea and and here we are it's released as a book so um, it's 58 portraits of, of, of players, of coaches, of, of players and one referee. Um, the idea is that it is not just a 
a glorified Wikipedia page, so it's not just a list of records and statistics. I kind of wanted to bring a human interest angle to each one and maybe tell people things they didn't know about players they haven't heard of as much and and, and give the personality side of those very, very famous players that we, we know and love. And hopefully it does that. I mean, the series is excellent um, and that therefore the book must therefore be excellent. It's, it's really straightforward. It, the art looks beautiful as well. That That's something really noticeable. Yeah, we, we, we've been really lucky in that to do this project and to raise as much money for the foundation as we could um very briefly the book is 13.99 and we're getting 10 pound of that to the foundation and to do that we needed people to work for free or at cost uh, and some of the people that have worked for free are those illustrators um stan chow is a very famous one and in, in his manchester base and has done quite a lot of stuff for for gary neville at hotel football um dan laden is also exactly the same you know, getting a really good following now, but there are there are loads in there. And Michael Atkinson is is one who we commissioned. The only one we commissioned is is the Bobby Robson one, which is on the front page, uh, the front cover. And yeah, these people have done that for free, and that's that's exceptional because I feel like they're not really getting the credit they deserve. Um, Stan Chow, friend of the podcast. Dan Layden would be a friend of the podcast, but Liverpool fan. It's a problem. Shame. <laughs> um, out. Uh, the Bobby Robson, uh, as, as somebody who regularly listens to your podcast, and I, I know that the that you share an affection, a strong affection for Bobby Robson. Um, w- was it the kind of connection with him that drew you to that charity, or the specific work that they do, or a bit of both? A bit of both, really. I mean, Bobby is. <laughs> I have a family connection to the northeast, and sadly, my my direct family connection to the northeast. My my grandfather passed away a few months before, coincidentally, before that that Bobby Robson piece came out, um, and before we even started the series. So that that wasn't the initial link, but but that family connection made it a very obvious call. Um, my grandfather used to go to the Ramside Golf Club in near Durham, where Bobby used to go for lunches. So. Bobby has always been someone that's been kind of close to my heart, not just as an England fan. Um, I'm fortunately slightly too young to remember 1990. Um, but as a kind of, just as a gentleman, you speak to people in Newcastle, you speak to anyone in football, and they they don't say Bobby Robson was a fantastic manager. They say Bobby Robson was a great man. And that was kind of my starting point for a lot of these icons. We know them as footballers, or we know them as managers, but what, what else is there? How do we remember them? Um, the charity angle is... <laughs> It's pretty obvious. The Bobby Robson Foundation was set up months before Bobby passed away when he was asked to set up a charity to raise half a million pounds. Um, and they did it in six weeks and the foundation was formed and it continues today. And it, it, it basically it looks to find more effective ways to treat and beat cancer, which is kind of a something that's obviously affected all of us in one way, shape or form. And if it hasn't, then then you're very lucky. So that was a no brainer for me. Um so yeah, kind of the, the mix of of having Bobby in the book, of the football connection to the charity and the fantastic work it does, plus the family connection. All as I say, it was a light bulb moment. And and when you when I sort of thought about it and all those came together, it was, yeah, as I say, a no-brainer. Uh so we've got to talk because of where you are, we have to talk about the United players and managers in in the book. Um there's no David Moyes, uh, uh, which is, you know. Uh, on a, on maybe on an even higher plane. I don't know. <laughs> Icon means different things to different people, doesn't it? Um, but uh, the, so you you said that the the I've I've read all the the player United player portraits that have been yeah. on Football Three Six Five. Um, I, 
I'm trying to work out whether my... I think my favourite is probably the Eric Cantona one, but that is just because it's Eric Cantona. Yeah. Um, the uh, the managers, you, you, you've you won on Fergie and won on Jose Mourinho. What did you come to kind of uh, appreciate about them? Or did you, was there, were there things in the writing process where you look at them in a bit of a new light? What, what, what was there about their kind of iconic status? I mean, it's, in a way, it's a very obvious question. They are, they're clearly icons of the game. But what is it that makes them that? I think with Ferguson... I think I call him the last king of football management. And it felt like that. It felt like that when he retired, I know Arsene Wenger still has an incredibly long tenure and and is coming to a slightly different end. But in terms of what Ferguson did, in my opinion, that no other manager has done is he did not just create a great team. Um, I love Brian Clough. He created a great team at Nottingham Forest that won an incredible achievement that that nobody expected them to. What Ferguson did is he created a great team and then through his own management style and his own sheer will of personality, he created a dynasty out of that. So he created four or five great teams and he created teams that even in the gaps between those great teams still won things. And that, to me, sets him apart from from almost any other manager in, in world football. Um, the other reason I... I am attracted to Ferguson in, in 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 a sort of iconic sense is the sheer hard work that that came from. You know, there, this is not a man who took shortcuts. This is not a man who um, played it safe. This is a man who was incredibly courageous with some of the decisions he made. And some of them were very unpopular and some of them were due to his own personality rather than the benefit of the club. But he backed himself on everything because through the sheer hard work that he put in, he had everyone's respect. You know, that class of 92, there's an argument saying that Eric Cantona was incredibly, incredibly influential in the creation of that class of 92, but it would have never come out of any other manager than someone who was prepared to work so, so hard at it and, and be an absolute football addict, which Ferguson was. Um, so, no, I mean, when you I was writing a list of those managers who would make the book, it, it, you know, it's no controversy to say that Ferguson is right at the top of that list because of what mm. he did, not just... Um, not just for Manchester United, but, you know, in the English game as a whole, in terms of attracting foreigners over, in terms of, um, in terms of creating that, 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 con- that team of, of constant success and that platform of domestic success that allowed him to push on in Europe, obviously ending in, you know, culminating in 1999. Um, Mourinho's in there. Mourinho was, was actually the last manager I added, um, him and Pep Guardiola are, uh, sorry, Wenger as well, the only current managers. <laughs> he is still just about hanging on. Um, but uh, Mourinho was the last one I added. Guardiola was there because, not necessarily because of his achievement, and in fact not because of his achievement at all, but because of this, and it's become a cli- sort of cliche buzzword, but philosophy and his way of doing things and his his idea at Barcelona of doing you know, of, of of that complete La Masia philosophy from, from under eights to first team and, and following very, you know, a few years afterwards, but following Johan Cruyff and kind of perfecting that ideal is why Guardiola was in there. Mourinho is slightly different in that his is a, I mean, his is just, he's in there through a sheer addiction to winning. You know, he's not, he's not even <laughs> addicted to football. I'm not, there are times where I'm not even sure he, he particularly enjoys football. He's just addicted to winning. He, he could be a, you know, a manager of a chess team, and he would be exactly the same. And he would be exactly the same in terms of his sheer determination to win and, quite honestly, his determination to be proved right, um, which is very powerful and, uh, you know, is, is a huge indicator in some of the decisions he makes, I think. Um, 
But having said that, Mourinho's record deserves respect. It deserves incredible respect at, at every club he's been to. Yes, there is an argument with a modern manager that they've all become checkbook managers, but that's kind of because the game's changed, I think, not because the managers have changed. Um, so, yeah, another tap-in, really, Mourinho. Uh, both of them are, are obviously, because of the time sensitive nature of writing the book neither Guardiola or Mourinho are included for the clubs they are at now and the, what they have done at Manchester United and Manchester City they're included for their personality and kind of they they feel like pillars of the modern management game yeah and, and I think that you know that the fact that they had the clash that they had in Spain when Real Madrid and Barcelona were unquestionably the two biggest and best teams in the world, and they were going head-to-head stylistically, almost politically. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned Guardiola being kind of the, that philosophy, but but Guardiola's relationship with Barcelona is unquestionably iconic, isn't it? He's an icon of Catalan independence, of, you know, of Barcelona-ness, um, which is, I wonder whether... This is a complete tangent, but I wonder whether at some point that's one of the reasons he hasn't quite been able to hit the heights everywhere else. Not that the football he played at Bayern wasn't magnificent, but it, you know, didn't hit that high. I think. I think. I, th- I actually think Guardiola is better at a, in a league and at a club, and in, and therefore in a situation where he can do effectively what Klopp has sculpted himself out and says, "I will be here for seven years." you will not sack me because my personality demands that you won't sack me and whatever I do will be for the greater good. So if I'm signing Naby Keita in 2017 to arrive in 2018, that would be a disaster at Manchester City because they wouldn't have got their key target in. Whereas at Liverpool now, it's not a disaster because I'm going to be here in three years. Don't worry about it. It doesn't quite feel like that. It feels like at Barcelona, we had that and it feels like at Bayern and City, it's, he's kind of been forced to squash that seven, eight years into a three-year plan, which is very, very difficult, especially given the strength of the teams around him. Um, I have been a little bit disappointed in in Guardiola um, in the in so much as he's had some of the same problems that, that Manuel Pellegrini faced, which I kind of didn't want him to have to do. But um, there's no doubt it is far, far harder in, in England. We kind of had this... Hardest league in the world. Managers don't want to know what happens when it hits, what hits them when they come here, and it's it's always done with a bit of puffed out patriotism. But I th- there's an element of truth in it. I think it is the hardest league to succeed in in the world because of the grueling schedule, because of the expectation to win something every season, and I think he's just found it harder than he thought. Yeah, there isn't a top six in any other league, really, is there? I mean, not that I don't think there's a major league around Europe where. You'd go, okay, well, there are properly six teams. Well, no, not six teams in the title race, five teams in the title race. I'm not putting Arsenal in the title race. (laughs) Very diplomatic. It would seem ridiculous. Um, There's a really interesting uh, point, and and some point there's a really interesting debate to be had about the the nature of Mourinho as an icon versus the nature of of Ferguson as one. Um, Mourinho's trophy cabinet will no doubt uh, match up to Ferguson's when he retires. Perhaps it won't be quite as full because he'll have stopped a little earlier, perhaps, or, you know, um, whatever it might be. But it seems almost impossible to imagine that Mourinho will ever build a dynasty anywhere. And in a way, for me, that's why Ferguson will always be the greatest because it's a sort of, 
I mean, it's an amazing achievement to go from club to club, winning and winning and kind of, you know, amassing all this this kind of reputation and silverware and stuff. But to stay in one place and build a sustainable legacy is like, that. that is an achievement which almost comes from a deeper place, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, and the other thing that, that Ferguson did is he managed to, perhaps because of how the game has changed and the rise of social media, etc., but while he would never claim or even care to be particularly liked outside of Manchester United, he certainly had an, an absolute respect. I think the, the one thing that Mourinho is, is, is slightly falling down upon in, in, in comparison with Ferguson is his ability to improve players that um, he finds at the club, uh, players that perhaps he isn't sold on at the start. Now, he has done that more at Manchester, Manchester United than, than some people thought. And you look at the likes of, you know, Ander Herrera and Antonio Valencia, et cetera, and even Henrik Mkhitaryan, perhaps, in the second, this season. But I think what Ferguson what Ferguson managed to do is, is more than any other manager in English football, is, is create a team and that dynasty that was great in the sum of its parts. I think what Mourinho has shown himself incredibly capable of doing and and it's it's more of a demand in the modern game than it ever was before is making an incredible sum of parts as good as it can be um i think there is a slight difference i think ferguson took teams beyond their natural level i'm not sure yet if Mourinho has done that what he's done is got absolutely everything out of and he's won things with teams that should have won things which is very hard because the pressures are different um that's why i see him not quite on the same level um Mourinho's, for me, Mourinho's iconic state is it kind of, as I said, comes all from that kind of self-obsession and obsession with winning. In that he is almost a, he's a parody, but in the you know, in a, in a completely complimentary term, everything he does is, is almost laughable. Whereas with things with Ferguson, we didn't really have that. We kind of, it was a very serious business. Um, Again, maybe that's just because we have more access now and we have more sort of insight and we have more opinions on people. But yeah, with Mourinho, it kind of feels like it's all, as I say, it's almost a a situation comedy at times, Um, but in an incredibly ineffective way. Um, So to come to some of the players then, uh, off the top of my head, Cantona, Beckham, Best, Henrik Larsson. Yes. I'm definitely counting Henrik Larsson because he's weirdly beloved at Man United um, for his four-month yes. cameo or whatever it was. Um, which of those is your favourite? Uh, David Beckham is my personal favourite in terms of player, although I should stress that he is not... He was not included necessarily before his Manchester United career, as as spectacular as it was. Um, in terms of Manchester United-centric, it, it has to be Eric Cantona. It has to be. Uh, I think time has... Has forced us to overlook just how important Eric was in terms of English football. Um, there were 13 foreigners on the opening day of the Premier League season, of which a number were goalkeepers because there weren't enough domestic goalkeepers to go around. So he went searching for other options. Eric Cantona, to take a line from from the piece, I think, which is incredibly self-obsessed, he, he was this puffed up, chest out, swaggering Marseillaise man that came in and said, yeah, we're going to do things a little differently now because you've called yourself the Premier League. You've rebranded as this huge, you know, this huge media concept and you want to be this big thing and you need stars. And at the moment, you haven't got stars. What I am is a star and I am going to make this Premier League mine. And that's exactly what he did. And he did it at a club that already had, you know, huge, huge personalities in in Alex Ferguson and in Roy Keane and, and in that class of 93 group coming through. And he just 
he just inspired them. He absolutely inspired them. I think we overlook how much of an impact he had with those young players because he had all of that skill. But if, if Cantona just had skill, he would just be a deity. He would just be untouchable to Manchester United, his teammates and to Manchester United fans. And there would be, you know, there'd be a huge love for him, but there wouldn't be any sort of any real affinity, I don't think, any sort of any very feasible, you could reach out and touch him. Because he was so hardworking and because he was so committed to, you know, honing his talents and, and, and making Manchester United great, that makes him touchable. And that makes him that makes us have an affinity with him. And, and of course, the other reason we have that, and Manchester United fans certainly have that, is because he was so flawed. You know, the idea of a flawed genius has become an absolute cliche over times. And I'm sure I use it too many times in the book. But he was the absolute poster boy for flawed genius because he was just, he was just, unapologetically and demonstrably Eric Cantona and I will do what I want and if you don't like it screw you and we absolutely love that don't we and it's what's fascinating about it is it's such a kind of um foreign concept I mean I mean uh like it is so alien to the English culture that it almost has to come from someone from somewhere else because that it's kind of the very opposite of the shared sense of whatever Englishness is. Yeah. You're going to just do exactly what you want and uh, and other people are going to have to adapt to you. That's, that's... Yeah, I mean, before Cantona, it, it, there was a mistrust of, of foreign footballers, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't outright xenophobia. That wasn't racism. That was just pure ignorance and it was ignorance that was completely understandable because we hadn't seen that before you know we'd we'd heard of foreign players coming over and you know we hadn't seen much of them on television etc but they were kind of like circus animals they were just like he's going to come in he's going to do a few kick-ups and we're all going to go oh isn't that brilliant isn't that very exotic and enjoy it what we hadn't seen is that that combination of oh he's going to do some incredible skills and we're going to enjoy it but he's also going to say a few years and he's also going to be the most committed person in this team and and the idea of aggression and passion and skill is no longer mutually exclusive it's it's completely smashed together and, and Cantona was the middle of that Venn diagram and and not just at Manchester United I think Emmanuel Petit talks about you know he opened the door for every French player and every foreign player because no longer were we kind of tr- sort of slightly viewed suspiciously as, okay, so he's probably a number 10 or he's probably a, a, a fancy winger. Actually, foreign players can be central defenders and they can be, you know, they can be aggressive central midfielders as well. And he did that. And and I think we, as I say, I think we overlook that completely now, his impact, probably because of those moments of Eric's that kind of overshadow everything else. And we remember him as a moments player rather than as a as a career footballer. We also, of course, remember him as a moments man. And I think the, you know, Eric's iconography is fascinating to me because it's so carefully manicured, like by himself. He he gave an interview, asked what his favourite moment at United was. And of course, of course, he said it was when I kicked the hooligan. Because of course, Eric Cantona would say that. It's, it's kind of almost performance art, isn't it? That, that I don't, I'm not sure I genuinely believe his favourite moment at Manchester United was where he kicked, when he kicked the hooligan. Maybe for part of his personality that's true, but you wonder whether actually winning the league, like he preferred ultimately, if he could have a choice between having never kicked Matthew Simmons or never won the league, he probably would have chosen never yeah. kicked Matthew Simmons. There's there's an air of, uh, obviously the links to Zlatan Ibrahimovic are pretty obvious here, but 
with Zlatan, and this is not a meaning to be derogatory at all, but there is a very strong element that this is manufactured for a purpose. Um, this is to be a sensation, which, you know, he's been advised and he is a very, very marketable footballer, there's no doubt. Um, with Eric, it was it felt innate it felt completely innate to him and this was just kind of this was ericness spilling over from time to time and you know we can't overlook just how serious an incident that was and you know if that had happened today i think you know there's an interview with gary neville with 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 graham hunter on his podcast where um when Neville was talking about the Suarez biting incident and he was saying, you know, I, I kind of underboard, you know, lowballed it because I remember Eric doing that and thinking, you know, he could be gone here. You know, he could be banned from football for life in this country quite feasibly. And, you know, he was called a stain on the game and it was, it was Ferguson that kind of had to sort of try and manage the situation. And, and yet through all of that, Eric kind of remained absolutely no contrition whatsoever no contrition whatsoever we demand contrition now from footballers for their abhorrent actions and rightly so but there was really very very little if any of it from Eric and yet because of who he was and how good he was and how you know how much he changed the league and kind of how grateful we were even without knowing we kind of let it slide because that's Eric so of course he's done that of course he's done that horrific thing but also weirdly quite funny thing yeah and you know I mean what he when he gave the interview and he said the reason that it was his favourite moment is because in life people come across people like that and they can't just kick them. So it's like a moment of freedom. <laughs> like, like, I mean, honestly, he really is the greatest footballer that ever lived. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's an interview with him, where I think literally straight after he'd done it, where he said, people that keep asking me why I did it, why I did it. He's like, well, it's not really about words. I just did what I wanted to do. If I want to kick a fan, I'll kick a fan. So, he, I mean, he never pretended to be a role model, did he? He just pretended, he just, he didn't pretend anything. He just said, I am a footballer and I'll do what I want. And if you like it, like it. And if you don't like it, don't like it. But I'm really not going to change. And in the end, Cantona's story, of course, is a story of triumph rather than a story of tragedy. But the another flawed genius who you write about, Dan, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you write about beautifully, is uh, George Best, who... Yes is kind of the ultimate flawed genius, really. Um, yes, and absolutely. And his story is, without question, an actual tragedy. You know, United fans sing uh, when they... Uh, to the spirit in the sky, they sing, when they die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go on the piss with Georgie Best. And every time they sing it, I think... I really wish United fans didn't sing this. I know yeah. I know why they do. I know there's no harm meant in it. I know it's meant for fun and it's meant it's about, you know, that bit of football which is about us all expressing our collective id. But alcohol killed George Best and ruined his life and ruined his family's lives. Yeah, and and kind of football maybe didn't play a huge part in that, but celebrity certainly did and celebrity came with the football and it is incredible how how little we've kind of learnt from that, even from back then, as the dangers of treating footballers as not as robots, because no one saw Best as that, but they, they they saw him as a footballer separately from being George Best, and it's impossible not to merge, you know, to merge the two, and 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 fans still continue to do that, like you say. Whereas the, the thing about George Best is that he was an incredibly vulnerable child. He was an incredibly naive and. Um, incredibly shy and 
unconfident teenager who happened to have this extraordinary talent it is something like out of you know like it's out of a children's you know comic book or children's tv program he was a child born with an incredible natural talent to play football he had made his first te- team debut at 17 international debut at 18 league champion at 19 european football of the year at 23 and by 27 he was basically done um he also came along to his you know, to his misfortune, he came along at a time after, just after Beatles mania where football kind of needed a, a superstar and it needed an English football needed a, a celebrity to kind of match up against that Beatles mania. And in George Best, it absolutely found one. It found one to such an extent that that he was labelled the fifth Beatle, for goodness sake. Um, and football, either knowingly or not, and, or, and either immediately or not, chewed him up and spat him out and kind of left him to... To rot away unfortunately and that's you know that's exactly what he did um it is it is a hugely hugely tragic tale and and one that only has the positive sides because he was so talented and because he scored some brilliant goals and because he won the european cup and because he was european football of the year but but actually we, we have to be mature enough to separate that from from the personal life um and, and unfortunately, sport and, and, and culture in this country was not at a stage in its maturity where we, we had enough about us to say, actually, for a minute, let's stop and, and help this guy before it's too late. Thankfully, we, we have done, we did that, you know, just in time with Paul Gascoigne. We did that, or, or Paul McGrath did that. He was, he was, you know, he was strong enough to almost do it himself. But we, we did do it with Paul Gascoigne before it was too late for his, for his life, if not for his football career. Um but the pop star image is is just a facade, you know. Best deliberately placed it over his own personality because he was vulnerable and he was scared at times. So he he placed this, you know, fantastic looks, fantastic image, fantastic ability over his as a facade over his personality, and and unfortunately, that lifestyle led to him drinking a lot of alcohol, and that alcohol led to. You know, he kind of saw that as his way of dulling that that vulnerability. And as we know too well, that only makes it worse, like further down the line. And, you know, and he, it go, you know, it needs to be repeated. George Best died at 59 years old. That's incredibly, incredibly young. And it's such a waste, not because of his football career, because he was still brilliant and he was good enough to kind of counteract all the problems in his personal life. Um, but for, yeah, for his family and for his, for his, for his later life, it's a huge shame, huge shame. Um the one thing I, the one thing about best that I, I also think with Gascoigne is I think there's an element here where you can be too talented that if you're not given the right guidance and the right education you can be too talented at football or or something because whereas others have to you know have to try and hone their skills have to work hard at, at not in, not physically but kind of mentally set aside time to to sort of hone their abilities best didn't have to do that nor did Gascoigne and when there's that gap in having to do that mentally, you fill it with something. And and the easy way to do when you're rich and famous is to fill it with the trappings of that fame. And and that's a very easy way to come unstuck. Uh, there was recently a 30 for 30 documentary about um, about Best. And then on their excellent podcast feed, the, the guy that runs their podcast did a kind of special interviewing the director about it. And there's a few clips of Best speaking about his own addiction and the transfer of his own addiction from football to alcohol, that he was addicted to football and then became addicted to alcohol. And I think that's, I think that's that point about talent is, is so, uh, is so important because if things come easy to you, 
uh, and then something else, like if if one thing that other people prize really highly comes really easy to you and then other things don't, the other things feel uh, insurmountable because this other thing that should be hard, everyone tells you it should be hard, is so easy. Why isn't everything else this easy? Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and, and the, I think you're absolutely right. And also, <laughs> that was kind of snowball effect of that with Best, and, and he said it himself, is that because the team depended on him so much, he said, I was kind of, I didn't have the maturity to handle it. So Manchester United and, and Northern Irish football and, and English football in terms of the league were all counting on me. In fact, football itself was counting on me to be the idol, and I just couldn't cope. So when I realised that drink kind of, was an easy answer and stopped me having to cope. I just carried on. The uh, the thing about football and best is, you know, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a red 20 years older than me who didn't say George Best was the best he's ever seen. And that's, you know, we're talking Giggs, Scholes, Keane, Cantona, mm. uh, Ronaldo even. Maybe maybe there would be a few that would acknowledge Ronaldo hit <laughs> a higher height. But in terms of, like, the thrill and joy of watching, talking to older Reds about George Best is a kind of magical experience because he clearly was a talent on a sort of preternatural level and you wonder whether with the trappings of the modern game, not that, not in that kind of old Fergie would have sorted out Gaza kind of way that like totally misunderstands addiction. <laughs> but, you know, um, like Fergie didn't sort out Paul McGrath, for example. Um, the, the, but in the sense that modern football's trappings in terms of physical development and all that kind of stuff, what best would have been today, you know, he, he was, a, a truly once in a generation talent, aren't they? Yeah, and I think the difference between between Best and Ronaldo is that is that Ronaldo has this incredible natural talent, but there is no doubt that by honing that talent and by giving him a you know individual training programs, etc., 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 it is it is possible to make Ronaldo better. There's an argument with Best that kind of what you got was was it. And it was plenty enough, thanks, because it was impossible to kind of make him better than he already was through anything other than just letting him, you know, giving him freedom and giving him licence to do that. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely I absolutely agree with you when you speak to any of these people about, about George Best. There is this kind of misty-eyed romance to it. And I think we need to be careful about kind of underestimating that because it's very easy to go, oh, yeah, you know, you've gone misty-eyed again about an old player and... And, and that's what people always do. And you always think the past is better. Well, well, yeah, maybe with George Best, the past was better. <laughs> you know, maybe he was the most talented. It, maybe the, the most talented player didn't happen to come along in, you know, after the year 2005. Maybe it happened in nineteen in the 1960s. And there's a very real possibility that that's true. It, as, uh, the sad thing is that he kind of, he always assumed right up until his death that he'd be remembered for, for football reasons. Whereas... In, in many people's eyes, he is, but in the majority of eyes, as we've said, it's he's still maybe seen as a cautionary tale rather than a tale of, you know, a tale of natural talent. There's always a but, and, and that's a huge, huge shame. It is, and I, and I, I think it's sort of, I, I guess among the collective, of all the different random collectives in the world, United fans are the people most likely to remember him for football. That's mm-hmm. the kind of, because it's it's, you know, there's a, there's not a statue of too many people outside Old Trafford, uh, no. but there is a statue of George Best. Um, mm-hmm. Dan, 
thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Where can people get the book? Uh, yeah, if they go, that's a really, really good point. Um, <laughs> if they go to portraitofanicon.co.uk, that links them through to the to the buying page very quickly. We are only selling it through the publisher's website. Amazon and etc. take more money of sale price than we can afford to give in terms of getting the money to the foundation so the the positive spin on that is you can be sure that i have stuffed your envelope and written it um so there is a personal touch but yeah if you go to portraitofanicon.co.uk then you can buy it from there uh, and i just can't recommend it highly enough having not read the finished book but having read a lot of these portraits along the way um it's well well worth it and for a fantastic cause uh thanks dan thank you very much a massive, massive thanks to Dan for coming on. That was a, a thoroughly enjoyable chat and definitely check out his book, Portrait of an Icon, um, and at DanielStory85 on Twitter and at F365 for Football365 stuff. Uh, just just a lovely chat with a lovely chap about some really amazing players and managers and that book looks genuinely beautiful and Dan's writing is always excellent. So, yeah, uh, heartily recommended. Um Right, I guess we should uh, we should preview Stoke before we go, should we? Stoke, yes. Can United do it on a probably quite sunny Saturday afternoon in Stoke? Uh, last time I was there was so cold. It was so cold. It was the Rooney goal, the the his his record breaking goal from the free kick, which earned United a massive point. This is a big chance for us to uh, get another two points on that tally of points that we are trying to get more than we got last season. Yeah, um, intro, I mean, we, we had a transfer market chat earlier. They've had a decent transfer market, I mean, at least on paper. Um, they've bought all the centre-backs. So you've got Kevin Vimmer. They paid a lot of money for a player who barely featured for Spurs. Uh, got I mean, Bruno that... Martins Indy, who's pretty mediocre, but, you know, he's about at Stokes level and, and brought Kurt Zuma in from Chelsea for Kurt Zuma's 85th loan. I mean, you just described 18 million as, like, a lot of money. That's, that's, that's like, like a, a £3 million transfer five years ago. A lot of money still for a player who barely played. But anyway, um, Darren Fletcher left West Brom and has gone to Stoke. Yeah. So. And, uh, you know, and he's had a couple of very good seasons at West Brom, I think. So he'll um, he'll be a very good addition. To, they brought Hesse in on loan from Paris Saint-Germain, who went, went there with some fanfare, didn't he? And then just kind of died. Um, not literally, obviously. He's made a good start. So, uh, Scored in his first game, yeah. didn't he? I mean, he's had terrible yeah, injury you know. troubles, and that's why he's at Stoke, obviously. Yeah, and they, they've they've made a bit of a you know a um, niche in getting formerly injured tippy tappy players uh, and bring them over to Stoke, haven't they? So, uh, although Bojan Kurcic has gone um, out again, hasn't he? Didn't he go to Alaves or something oh, like right. that in Spain? So, I think he has left. He's on loan, Alaves. There you go. Uh, lost Marco Arnautovic for quite a bit of money, um, although you know. Uh, with your argument, twenty million is like four million pounds. <laughs> yep. Uh, and Phil Bardsley, the beating heart of that team, has gone to Burnley because, like, as if being at Stoke wasn't Phil Bardsley enough, he wanted to be even more Phil Bardsley. So he's gone to Burnley, the only Phil Bardsleyer team in the league than Stoke. Mm, very good. Anyway, yeah, I mean they um, they have started the season with uh, a loss, a draw, and a win. So, you know, mixed bag for Stoke, which is kind of what you expect <laughs> from them, isn't it? I mean, that is a mixed bag. It's as mixed as a bag could get after three games, isn't it? It's the perfect record. 
I mean, if, they if beat, it was in hat-trick terms. They beat Arsenal, which is just a free hit for Stoke, isn't it? That's like the three points that's immediately ticked off on the calendar. Arsenal at home, three points, nailed on. Yeah, in Sam Allardyce's ranking system, they're a gold medal, yeah, Arsenal now. <laughs> exactly. Absolute <laughs> shambles. Uh, Mark Hughes is, is in an interesting spot. I think he's... He's going to have to have a decent season this season to kind of keep the fans on side and all that. But what does that even mean anymore? Like, what can your maximum level of ambition be if you're Stoke? I mean, are we talking about it, finishing eighth is essentially the, the kind of goal for all these teams? Anyone below yeah, Everton? That, that's it. I think any any better than eighth is a miracle for Stoke. Eighth is an outstanding season. Tenth is a very good season. And below tenth is pretty mediocre. Yeah. There. Eighth. To 10th or 11th, I think, is about the range that Stoke should be looking for. I wanted to... I've just seen a question that's come in just in the last couple of minutes, which is reminds me of something I wanted to talk about earlier, actually, which it, at Nishan TJV says... Um, at Nishant JV says, Mourinho uh, had quite a strong statement on the crowd being quiet uh, after the um, Leicester game. How does Old Trafford rectify this? And I honestly think that the answer is with better acoustics because I was sat in the northeast quadrant and it was like pretty buzzy and lively. It was for, for I think I, I put a message in the Rankcast WhatsApp group, didn't I, Ed, that was like, oh, it was a pretty good atmosphere today. And you said for a ground full of tourists. And I was like, yeah, a pretty good atmosphere for United in 2017. And K-Stand were getting involved and making some noise a bit. And a couple of people I spoke to who were sat in the Stretford End said it was like really good for the Stretford End uh, basically, I just felt the whole atmosphere was kind of buzzy all the way through, and I was really surprised to hear Mourinho call out the fans after that mm. one. There'd been plenty. There'd be plenty of games where you wouldn't be at all surprised to hear him call out the fans, but th- this one didn't feel like a good match for that. Mm. Yeah, you, you might well be right. I mean, people have been talking about the bad acoustics at Old Trafford for many a year. Um, it won't be bad at Stoke, though. United will have a mm. fantastic travelling support, and, and Mourinho hopefully will praise the fans afterwards. He normally does. I wonder if Marcus Rocco will be sat in the away end again, as he was last season. What, the only person in a tyre away end wearing a white cap, so you could spot him from anywhere in the stadium. <laughs> no, she's going to sit, sit with the home fans and just cause them aggro. <laughs> He'd love that. He would love... Imagine how in his element Marcus Rocco would be. Good stuff. All right. So so do we have anything to say about Stoke other than they've got some decent players and they've had a bit of a mixed start? No, I mean, I, I just don't know what else. I'm the, I guess we could talk about what United will do. We play, We saw the kind of... The one change that everyone thought might happen. Martial played against Leicester. I've seen lots of people very critical of his performance, which really surprised me because... He seemed good to me, but I could not have more like red, white, and blue tinted spectacles here. Um, the but so I wonder whether it will be that team. Is Rashford going to come back, or will there be kind of a bit more fundamental change? Will we see maybe a four-three-three, even given the level of opposition and and the kind of atmosphere and all that stuff? I'm, I'm not sure that Mourinho will want to change things up too much. I mean, I thought Martial was good against Leicester. Um, at the moment, it looks like Rashford and Martial are job-sharing on that left-hand side. So I, I, I don't suspect there'll be too many changes just yet. Um, we'll see. I mean, obviously, players coming back from international duty, they'll have all played two games. Some of them uh, may well have been travelling a long way. I mean, um, um, uh, Antonio Valencia's been with the Ecuador squad for two World Cup games. It's a very long flight back. Um, that might be a change, maybe. Uh, Damian coming in, perhaps. Um, uh, other than that, 
We'll see if there's any sort of minor niggles after the international break. Phil Jones don't, doesn't appear to have broken himself just there's, yet. There's another game to go, Ed. There is. Um, so, yeah, I don't expect a lot of change. Okay. Well, there'll be... Um, and, and are you optimistic? Do you think we can deal with the tippy-tappy threat of Stoke? A, very, a different kind of opposition to we face so far. You well, just... I think we're, we're, we're the big team going over <laughs> to Stoke to try and bully these tippy-tappy lads. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I think uh, you know United have started the the, um, the season well, and uh, I think we'll control possession uh, and the narrative against Stoke. And um, you know, Mark Hughes hasn't built a side that just defends. So, and they're at home, so they're going to come out a little bit, and that'll be good. Yeah. So optimistic. I am optimistic. I think United will win. Would you like a score? I'm going okay. to say 2-0. I, I, you can't just predict 4-0, can you, anymore? Because we've proved that there will be other results this season than 4-0. Um, I might I might split the difference. 2-0 two, two, two or 4-0 is the only option so far. I'll go with 3-0, mixing it up. Wow, radical. Actually, do you know what? No, my serious prediction for this game is 2-1 to United. Because I think this this the international break might have uh, altered our, halted our momentum a little bit. And I think... Stoke will be buzzing to try and, you know, do something. And they have got some attacking talents. And and we are probably overdue a defensive mistake from someone. So, yeah, 2-1. But United have got too much to, to not win this game. All right. Very good. Well, I guess that brings us to a close. We've uh, managed to fill up about an hour and a half uh, of listening with absolutely nothing to talk about. Yeah. Impressive stuff. Yeah. You're welcome, listeners. Um, we'll be back uh, same time next week. Patreon backers, stay tuned. All right. See you then. The Rankcast is produced by Tom Jenkins and supported by listeners like you. Head to patreon.com slash rankcast to find out more.